This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Air Force is enhancing its capabilities in the sky and on the ground with new networking capabilities of its planned new fleet of tankers and with a revised and accelerated spending plan to fix some of its aging hangars. Plus, DOD Special Operations Command is looking to enhance the interconnectedness of its weapons platforms. This and much more in this week's DOD Reporter's Notebook with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu and Scott Mossioni. And Jared, we've got something called the Advanced Battle Management System, which is going to be on the tankers. But my understanding is there's no operational tankers yet, the KC-46. What's going on? Well, the platforms exist. It's just that the the KC-46 program has not reached full operational capability so far. But but while a lot of that integration work is still going on, I think, on its way to reaching FOC, I think they felt like this was an ideal platform to try to integrate ABMS onto But basically, the idea is the tanker fleet writ large throughout the Air Force is up and flying around basically all of the time. So it's a good it's a good place to put something like ABMS, as you said, a hot spot that can distribute data throughout throughout the world, really, to various Air Force platforms, starting right now with just the F-22 and the F-35. The Air Force had signaled that Air Mobility Command really was on board with ABMS and and the broader JADC2 concept as an early adopter, even during this sort of architectural construction phase that ABMS was going through over the past two years or so. But the, the, the news here is that as of Friday, the Air Force declared that that architecture building phase is really over at this point. And it's, start, it's time to start buying hardware and software and integrating this stuff onto actual platforms and bringing this thing into the real world. And this will let them communicate with other platforms like the F-22 and the F-35 and I guess the rest of them. Yeah, eventually, uh, you know, the vision, the DOD-wide vision through Joint Ultimate Command and Control is to connect everything. So this is really just a starting point, as you say, with the F-22 and the F-35. But uh, the the logic here is, as I said, since since the tanker fleet is up and moving around all over the world every day, 24-7, it's a logical place to sort of host this data distribution platform for starters. And just a detail, this doesn't entail large appendages like the old AWACS planes that had those big, almost like saucers on top. It sounds like that's something that this will not require. It's a good question. We haven't seen what the actual form factors will look like yet, but if I had to guess, I would say it's probably going to look more like what you see in a uh, on the top of a commercial airplane, the, the little bump that houses the satellite uh, satellite uh, gear that makes Wi-Fi work on a on a commercial airplane. So yeah, I, I doubt it's going to I doubt it's going to look too weird. And Scott, this ties into the Special Operations Command's future common data fabric. This is coming up at their conference too, I guess. And uh, what are we finding there that that's related to this whole tanker hotspot deal. That's right. Well, so the tanker hotspot is part of the joint all-domain command and control, and the Air Force is part of that as the advanced battle management system. The special operations obviously sort of works across uh, services, cross commands, and all those sorts of things. So it's trying to dial into this joint all-domain command and control environment as well. What they're trying to do is create a data fabric, which is really a way that they can bring all of their data together to make it discoverable to everyone at different classification levels, and then use that data to, uh, you know, send out to the different platforms that they have or different uh, you know, service members that they have in the field so that they can get real-time data about things that, uh, 
you know, they need for their mission and that is mission critical. Uh, you know, one of the things that the chief information officer of SOCOM said is that she wants uh, industry to rethink its business models to not necessarily be a full stack solution, but to be focusing on infrastructure as a service, data as a service, so logarithms as a service and those sorts of things. So uh, the SOCOM can mix and match and make sure that all these things can be interoperable as possible. And, of course, all these platforms have a need to stay on the ground sometimes for repair and maintenance. And you've been covering the Air Force's plan for facilities, upgrades, and maintenance backlog getting to. What's the latest plan look like? That's right. Well, this is something that Federal News Network actually broke two years ago, which is that the Air Force is working on an infrastructure investment strategy. Now, two years later, uh, going into 2022 budget, they're uh, planning on finally getting this thing off the ground. So uh, just a little primer here. Last count, 35 percent of Air Force facilities were in the poor or failing uh, category. That's not something you want when you're trying to protect high Uh, cost uh, planes like the F-35. So what they're going to do is try and invest 2% of what it would cost to uh, what the actual replacement value of these facilities would be, and then push that up to 2.3% later on, maybe, you know, the next year after that. Afterward, it calls for increasing that number by about 2% or a billion dollars per year in hopes of just recapitalizing these facilities. And then the other option for these facilities is just getting rid of the ones that don't work anymore, the ones that are obsolete, and trying to save some money instead of trying to hold things together with duct tape. Yeah, it's always like you see someone have an expensive new car and put it in a dirty, falling down little garage. You wonder, maybe they should put some money into the garage and less so into the car. That's right. Well, you know, every base has its story about you know, a hanger that is used as a door hinge or, uh, you know, duct tape, as I said, holding together some panel that uh, really needs a a proper screw or proper nut and bolt and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, this is really just trying to get the the Air Force back into a proper um, protection for its uh, its 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 buildings and things like that. Uh, you know, one of the things that we saw was Air Force Tendal got ravished by a hurricane and uh, you know damaged some airplanes in in the making of that. So the more they can protect their assets, the better it will be for the future. So we should see evidence of that when the budget comes out for the government wide budget that is on Friday, somewhere deep in the Air Force, there will be something that expresses this. That's right. It'll be in two different accounts, most likely. One will be the operations and maintenance portfolio, and then the the second will be within the facilities sustainment restoration and modernization uh, sort of portfolio within that. Uh, You know, we'll also see it within military construction as well as they start to build new things or, you know, try and recapitalize some of that that old buildings. And briefly, Scott, the DOD is kind of on the spot again in social issues with respect to its response to domestic abuse that occurs among troops around the world. What's going on there? That's right. Well, the Congress is actually later on this week going to be doing a a hearing on this. The uh, House Armed Services Personnel Subcommittee will be looking into it. Uh, You know, we've seen heard a lot about military response to sexual assault and harassment, but uh, domestic abuse is also a large issue. There were about 40,000 domestic abuse incidents between 2015 and 2019, 74 of which were physical abuse. Now, one of the reasons the military really wants to stay on top of this is that domestic violence is an indicator for future violent actions by certain people and, and, and criminals. So uh, something that's really 
concerning for the military. Uh, what GAO found, this is from a GAO report, is that uh, installations really are not conducting the proper training and that at other times, uh, commanders were trying to justify abusers' behaviors and then said that the chain of command to some of the survivors was on the abuser's side and not the survivor's side. Very concerning stuff uh, for a military that's trying to retain uh, more women and more diverse people. Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni and Jared Serbu. Check out their DOD Reporter's Notebook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is going to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. 
And and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision, and overcoming barriers. And and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up Again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy, and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. 
not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.